You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go to the many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunted gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk about epic monsters. So on Tuesday's episode, we talked a lot about the Tarrasque, and I do highly suggest listening to that episode before continuing on this one, as I do address some of the points that I'm going to be bringing up in that episode. So that being said, Nathan, when I'm talking about an epic monster, to what am I referring? A monster that is pretty cool. In other words, <laughs> a monster that's for <laughs> epic level adventures. That's what it actually means. So something that is for players who have um, gone above the levels of 20, if I'm not wrong, and are now playing endgame stuff for D&D. Mostly, yeah. So exactly what is the beginning of epic in Dungeons & Dragons is actually something that can be debated a little bit. Uh, You could say that it's only when you're at level 20 that that's the case. Or you could even say that like once you're at level 17 and players might start getting access to Wish, like I'd be okay saying that could be considered the start of epic. When you are at just the flat-out rewriting reality tier of magic, I'm fine counting it there. But in terms of monsters, there are many, many, many discussions and forums and analyses just all over the Internet about how to do high level Dungeons and Dragons, because the general consensus that most people have for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons is the fact that it is better balanced at lower levels and that at the point where you are into the epic territory of 5th edition, that DMs basically just throw their hands up and give up a lot of the time. So a lot of high-level stuff ends up kind of fizzling out, or you know, players may just lose interest in things because the challenges of high-level Dungeons & Dragons isn't really there as much in 5th edition. There are a few rare 
high level monsters that are available to DMs. And they actually did make an attempt at addressing this in the newest book that just came out uh, last month, the uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, which does actually make an attempt at a higher magic world kind of based more on Greek mythology that has stronger monsters as part of it. But to be honest, even there, I don't think that they really went far enough. So when you get to epic level characters, PCs, there are a number of factors to take into account when a DM is trying to balance something against them. The first question of which being, do you want to balance things against them? And this is one of those very big world building questions that I really do think DMs, again, should think about early on in their world building plans. Are there, you know, horrible, dangerous, you know, end game type threats in the material plane? Or do you have that more video gamey zones approach where like this area is relatively safe this one is a little more dangerous and then you have to leave the material plane and go into the astral sea or the plane of fire if you want to get to the epic levels of threats so again think about where you want your high level threats to be because that should shape your world building if you have the tarask in your game canonically that is a creature that lives on the material plane and then hibernates and wakes up and wreaks havoc every so often so if that is a thing that exists in your world that is a thing that either a is well known because holy shit there's a city destroying monster out there or b has been dormant long enough to have faded into legends but again considering the fact that dwarves and elves and just immortal beings or long-lived creatures exist in D&D, you'd think that that would be a rarer thing for something to fade into myth. So this is just something that DMs should think about in their world building. Because, again, if the Tarrasque exists in your world, then there would be, like, plans for it. Would there be, like, Tarrasque evacuation drills, like, if schools are a thing? Would there be, like, planned resistance if the Tarrasque appears? Then any, like, ongoing war is to be put on hold to focus on dealing with the Tarrasque first, because that is more important than our petty bullshit. Like, are there treaties around such a creature? Like, if you have city-level threats, that influences the world in a lot of ways, and that is something that DMs ought to think about. Not to mention, it's kind of fun from the player perspective to just find out, like, oh, yes, you know, these are things that are out there in the world, um, you know, like there's the classic trope of, you know, here be dragons on old timey maps. That's like, this isn't a place you should not go. Like if you do have like active epic monsters, then that could be even more a thing of just if as like if you're a DM who uses props in your games, like if you were to have used Incarnate or some other program to make a map for your players and they ask, wait, what are these things on the map? Oh, you know, that's the Tarrasque, that's the Leviathan. Those are just the places you, you really shouldn't go. Then that creates a tone to the world of, oh, there's shit out there that we are not ready for which is also a good thing to teach your players early on to try to break them of the mentality of if it has stats, we can kill it. Because there are some things that should be 
beyond players out there in the world. Whether that is because it is truly that epic a threat, or whether it is just because the party themselves are just lower level at this point in time, is up to you as the DM. So, that being said, there are a lot of potential paths to make a creature a truly epic threat. So, uh, before I ramble on, uh, this is obviously a subject that I do love and enjoy and tweak way too much, much to my player's fury. Uh, I'm actually going to throw this to you, Nathan, to start. What would you do if you wanted to create a truly epic monster? So, if I were to try to create something um, of a epic sort, one thing I find quite important and actually would be having it wouldn't be quite a gimmick, but I, I guess you could call it that, where there, is, there should be something that you can point at the monster and say, it's that kind of monster. Because, I mean, that's what legends are made of. So, for example, the Dracula sucks blood. Uh, Terras, big, scary, indestructible, so on and so forth. So that's generally what you want to have in mind when creating a epic level, an epic monster, sorry. Exactly. I'm again, I'm very pleased that you mentioned a very particular point. When you are making a high level monster, then it is very much worth considering the theme on the monster that you want to create. So the Tarask is Godzilla. It is the giant juggernaut that is supposed to be near unstoppable. The vampire with its regeneration and its speed is supposed to be able to just do hit and run tactics if you want to just really terrify a population. But vampire, interestingly enough, actually, is really not a threat much to high level adventurers. So high level adventuring party would really just be able to destroy a vampire relatively easily because it really doesn't have that many hit points. It doesn't have that much speed really at its disposal. It does have the misty escape ability, which is quite nice, which lets it turn into mist when it gets reduced to zero hit points to try to run away. And that actually means that vampires, I would say, make a good template on what you need for a powerful threat. But with Vampire, the actual health and damage numbers are what I would say is insufficient. But a Vampire actually has a really good set of abilities for a boss monster, but just that the numbers are actually rather imbalanced in my opinion. So let's actually go ahead and just use the Vampire as an example of just how to make an epic monster. So let's say that instead of just using the normal vampire stat block in uh, any of the various books where vampires appear, Curse of Strahd would be the most obvious one, but there are quite a number of vampires and actually a couple of variants even, which is quite nice. The vampire spellcaster, vampire warrior. Anyway, uh, that's just me reminiscing on my love of D&D vampires. But the actual vampire, it only has 16 AC, 144 hit points, and a bunch of abilities, but its actual stats, like I said, aren't actually super high. So it is considered a CR, so challenge rating, 13 creature. So something that can be a threat to a mid-level party, but really nothing if you consider, you know, a group of level 20 adventurers. Like a level 20 adventurer could solo a vampire, which checks out because they're level 20 adventurers. 
And there's a reason that they got to that point. But anyway, so if you wanted to make something like a vampire into a much more significant threat, the first thing to do then would just be to give it a little bit more AC, but especially to give it a good chunk more health. Because as I do so often say that there is that mentality of if it has stats, we can kill it. So if the players were to stumble across, you know, let's go ahead and just call this an ancient vampire for the you know sake of naming. So if they did stumble across an ancient vampire, then how would such a thing be different from the typical? So it's older. So maybe you even have it have that more kind of monstrous visage of having that more like bat mutated type of creature so it could have this you know monstrous form and then you could even just give it a strength stat boost you could give it you know higher con you could give it a little more charisma and give it a little bit more magic abilities to it like use more of the vampire spellcaster than just the typical vampire you could go ahead and then make it so that it's attacks instead of just being 1d8 plus 4 is what a vampire on arm strike deals the canonical vampire one d8 plus four that is garbage that is really weak right like the canonical DD vampire is annoyingly weak it's like, and it, it pisses it's, me it's off it's kind of pathetic like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pathetic. really sad and to be fair it does have multi-attack but it's multi-attack lets it do a whopping two attacks and th- th- that's it <laughs> Are you serious? A creature that like in mythology is known for super speed and strength like in D&D has that compared to a commoner. But a vampire is not a significant threat to adventurers until we make it. If only this game was called, you know, Vampires and Dungeons or something. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Vampire the Masquerade is a thing that exists with way more advanced rules on vampirism, which does actually have quite a lot of interesting mechanics anyway that's a separate podcast but they have some good things in there coming soon just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh vampire the remy raid <laughs> the remy raid wow what can i say i love using alliteration with my name or just in general i like means of alliteration anyway so in order to make a monster threatening The first thing to just think about is that what is the goal of the creature? Is the creature's goal to survive? Is the creature's goal to destroy threats against it? Or is it just something else entirely? Like you can have old powerful things out there that aren't really combat focused. So maybe you would boost the escape abilities because they don't really want to get into a fight. So if you wanted to, you could just make an ancient vampire who got that way because they just don't get into straight up fights because they know that adventurers would just flat out obliterate them and that that's just not to their advantage. So maybe in that case, then you instead of tweaking its combat abilities much, you could just make it so that it has a higher regeneration or maybe it has a magic item that vastly increases its speed when it's in its mist form. And then it just uses its boosted abilities to get the fuck out of there. And then you have like the kind of scheming big bad who's just trying to send minions after them. And that's fine. So whether you want to have high level threats be through a single boss type monster or whether it is through their intellect, allowing them to have the planning skills to know what they can and cannot survive, because that is just yet another thing in D&D in general. 
that is, why is it that so many of the mastermind type characters end up fighting to the death? Like they're scheming types. So why wouldn't they run or have escape plans? That's one thing that we arguably did right in Riftwake, which is the fact that the certain events happen the way that they do because ambushes you try to take out the mastermind types when they don't get time to plan so you try to get them by surprise you try to make them unable to get to react and that is how you try to beat such things but anyway that's more of a strategy tangent but going back to actual epic monsters so let's say that instead of the manipulative type you have the desire to just make a true boss monster fight so we have talked a lot in the past about how 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons is almost entirely balanced based around the idea of the action economy. That the side in the fight that just has more attacks has a significant advantage against the other side. And this is where 5th edition, at least in my opinion, really does not do well at all. Because if you do have let's just say for math's sake, let's just say a party of level 20s. If you had, let's say, you know, two fighters, a paladin, you know, a couple other magic users, then each fighter at that level has four attacks per turn and the ability to use action surge to give themselves an additional four attacks twice. So for two rounds of combat, they'd be able to get eight attacks in each. On the other hand, you know, paladin will still have uh, two attacks, which you know, not great, not the worst. So then that could easily mean then that that plus magic users on the other side, like if you've got a warlock with Eldritch Blast, that's another four attacks at that level. So you can easily have 20 attacks focused against a single boss in one turn or one round rather, excuse me. So with that said, having a boss monster is actually really, really hard in fifth edition. So there are a few things that a DM can do, though, to mitigate a lot of that. So shockingly enough, the easiest one is to give your bosses levels and abilities, because we talked a lot before in the uh, Barbarians episode about how if you have a bear totem barbarian, that they have resistance to all damage except psychic while they're raging. Also, a barbarian at level 20 is able to rage infinitely. So for all intents and purposes, such a barbarian is able to have resistance to everything but psychic all the time. So if you wanted to make a boss monster, if you were to really go kind of nuts with it, have a dragon with 20 levels of barbarian, and then you have a dragon that is resistant to everything but psychic. You have, you know, the multi-attack that a barbarian has would probably get subsumed under the dragon's multi-attack anyway. So the dragons would probably just stay. But then if you just have, okay, wait a minute, barbarians also get advantage on their initiative. So then your dragon would have advantage on his initiative. Uh, you would have advantage on dexterity saving throws if someone tries to use magic against this dragon. Like having player abilities in the hands of a powerful already monster is horrifyingly effective 
as well as relatively easy for a DM to do mechanically. I mean, especially if you do have D&D Beyond or something similar, then you can just make a regular character sheet and then just replace the hit points with whatever the monsters is supposed to be. Uh, Or you could also just boost the hit points even higher if that is something that you want to do. Because technically speaking, the mechanics of adding levels to a monster would add that 20d12 on top of the dragon's already massive hit point total. But whether you want to do it that way or if you want to homebrew it a little bit differently is always up to you as the dungeon master because that is an optional thing to do of how you want to implement that. On the other hand, magic items is another very, very easy way, well, not easy, but effective way to give creatures a little bit more oomph. So there is an item called the Berserker Axe that has an interesting effect. So first off, uh, it does have a curse that just makes it so that the creature only wants to use that item, blah, blah, blah. But that's I don't care about that. I think that that part's kind of dumb. But the important part, that item gives you plus one hit point per level that your character has. So if you had one of those in the hands of a max level character, then they have 20 additional hit points just for being attuned to this magic item. And that's neat. So if you had something like that or an even better version. So if you had instead of a rare magic item, if you did have a level 20 big bad guy with a plus three version of that item, then you can have there be like, you know, a barbarian dragon who like just for funsies, even we'll just go fully nuts with this. Let's just say that it's a gold, uh, ancient gold dragon because metallic dragons can shapeshift into humanoid forms. So then they can just have their hit point total in the human form with a magic item that if you have a plus three version, you could say you could homebrew it so that it gives plus three hit points per level. So then that would be an additional 60 hit points to this creature. And you can bet your ass that that would become a rather desired magic item in the world. And if it is discovered that, you know, the axe had such an enchantment, then that could explain why the thing got so strong, because they are constantly under attack by headhunters that want that damn axe. And then that, again, creates world building, it creates plot hooks, it creates story for, you know, how and why such a, you know, powerful being came to exist. Because, you know, it's just trying to fucking survive and didn't think about the reaction to it doing so. So, again, I love thinking the outside in perspective all of the time. So thinking about how that would influence things is something that I enjoy. But anyway. Another thing to think about if you do want to have even more like out there kind of epic monsters, do you want it to be a normal combat encounter at all? Uh, Out of curiosity, Nathan, have you ever actually played World of Warcraft? No, actually, I've not played World of Warcraft. So there's one encounter that in that game that is the perfect example of my next point, which is... There is a dragon in World of Warcraft named Deathwing, who is the size of a mountain for all intents and purposes. This thing is enormous. And if you wanted to use just that type of colossal creature, to borrow the phrase from older D&D editions, 
like if you wanted this colossal dragon out there in the world or you know other colossal things besides just the dragon that is not something that you're normally going to be able to kill with a sword because you just would not be able to get through its hide in any really meaningful way so what they did for the mechanics of that boss encounter is that you just have to basically get weak points to be exposed that you can then attack. So you cannot just attack the thing. You can only actually weaken it to a point to get it to expose the weak point that you can try to target. And this is one thing that actually has been recently officially adduced, introduced into 5th edition D&D. So one of the new creatures that is in the uh, mythic odysseys of Theros is the uh, Traumocratus. I don't know how that is honestly supposed to be pronounced, but it is a monstrous, just super, super powerful kraken. And this is one of the creatures in that book where they introduce, instead of just the legendary actions that a boss typically has in the monster manual and such, they also introduce a set of mythic actions on top of the legendary actions. And this is only when a certain trigger occurs that these actions become available. So for those who used to play 4th edition D&D, there is a mechanic that has unfortunately disappeared that a lot of us who did play D&D actually did quite like and bring across, which is, as a result of being bloodied, blah. And there were all kinds of effects back then where once a creature is bloodied, something happens. So like a dragon that got bloodied would instantly recharge and get to use its breath weapon as a reaction, which is horrifyingly effective in combat at that mid stage in the battle. Other creatures would have something like they get an additional attack per turn while they're bloodied, or they take less damage while they're bloodied. And it was an incredibly versatile thing that was a lot of fun in that edition. 4E gets a lot of crap, and for good reason a lot of the time, but there were a number of very good things from it that I do honestly quite miss. Anyway, uh, sorry, that was a tangent on tangent. But uh, going back to what I was about to say about the uh, Traumocratus, this is a huge crack, uh, sorry, gargantuan kraken that has this new mythic trait that is kind of like that result of being bloodied, which is just that when it is reduced to zero hit points, it doesn't die or fall unconscious. Instead, that damage just creates cracks in its carapace that reveal its hearts. And it even then goes on. It has four of them. It has such and such AC and hit points, blah, 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 blah. So the idea being that all of the damage that you're doing to the creature aren't really hurting it. You're just focusing in on one area to expose this weak point. And that is an amazing mechanic that is a perfect thing to use for more colossal sized creatures in your game. So if this is a thing that you want to do, I highly, highly suggest looking at the uh, Traumocratus in the mythic Odysseys of Theros, because that mechanic is very much something that can get tweaked and expanded to all kinds of different creatures. Like the mythic actions and mythic trait that were introduced in that book uh, don't quite go far enough, in my opinion, to make 
stronger bosses, but it is nonetheless an incredibly interesting mechanic to make it so that you don't automatically kill creatures just by having, you know, five people with swords attacking a monster. So that is very much something that I do recommend looking into. So all that being said, now let's move on to, I touched on a little bit, but now some more detail. Action economy, jazz hands. So like I like we have said many, many a time already, even though bosses are usually considered to be relatively powerful, if you have a lot of high level adventurers opposite them, they will just have many, many more attacks per turn that make it so a boss is in trouble. So how to balance that is something that has quite a lot of options, honestly. Option number one would just be to give the boss type monster an area of effect ability to allow them to do more on a single turn. So one example of that, like let's say you have this super powerful dragon, then maybe, you know, let's just say it's a red dragon and maybe it has a fire aura that you could copy from the fire elemental. And then you have it be that this thing just generates so much heat that if anything is close to it, it just can take damage. And that would help balance out just everything near it would have to do saving throws or take damage. Or you could have it be where, you know, maybe some the powerful dragon, like instead of just having their fire breath, have figured out how to just launch it as a fireball. And considering that the dragon itself is immune to fire, then you can just have it launch this fireball straight down and then it just blasts everything in the area, the dragon included, but the dragon itself would not be hurt by such a thing. So again, going back to what we talked about of monsters having themes as well, if you want it to be a situation where, okay, this is an ancient dragon, how did the dragon become ancient? So survivability is a very important thing for bosses. How do they survive the many, many fights they've been in to get to this point? So having either regeneration for some types of creatures or having some method of healing is a good idea. And there does actually exist a uh, legendary magic item, the Red Dragon Mask, or any of the dragon masks, really, that are a very, very interesting item in how they can be used. So that is a thing that any creature that is attuned and wearing it, if they have no resistance to fire, they get resistance to fire. If they have resistance to fire, they gain immunity to fire. If they have immunity to fire, they heal half damage from all fire. So this is actually something I have done uh, actually earlier today, to be honest, in my home game is that I gave an ancient red dragon the red dragon mask. So then when the dragon just launches fire in a wave around and under itself, it not only damages the party, but it also heals itself. And then that required smart tactics on the side of the party. Fuck, 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 the dragon's healing. Do we have something that stops heals? Yeah, uh, the, you know, you can use something like Chill Touch. Or uh, if you use Unearthed Arcana Material, there's a spell Spirit Shroud that also can stop some healing. So something like that, like it creates a more tactical encounter because it's this extra avenue of danger to the party that they have to figure out how to stop. So that is 
an extra mechanic in the game that's just this one magic item that is a canonical thing that if you do just give to a well-suited creature can really change the balance of power in the encounter of how that works because most boss monsters don't have healing like yeah vampires do have their regeneration but it's really not that much in terms of in combat out of combat it allows them to heal to full health relatively quickly like really really quickly and that is incredibly dangerous but in combat a vampire's healing really isn't that much but like one member like one person on one attack can easily make up what a vampire regenerates each turn it's only like 20 hit points a turn which is really not that much on the other hand so aoe and healing so healing also you can have something like that magic item to give the monster an ability to heal themselves or you could do something like the boons in the dungeon master's guide so this is something that is in the dungeon master's guide as a optional way to reward creatures that already level 20 so this is basically additional kind of like feats in that it's just many, many things on a list that you can pick from to boost a character's power. And officially, I'm pretty sure it says that the DM is supposed to pick an appropriate boon for the character. But whether you want to do it that way or just let them you know, go towards a specific one as a goal, always up to you as the DM. So one of them, though, is the... I, I just totally lost my train of thought. What just happened? Uh, what boon was I even thinking about? What the fuck? I am tired. Remy is getting old, boys. Four, <laughs> four zero four error. Please restart your system. Oh boy. Uh, God damn it! What the fuck? What just? What on earth just happened to me? What was I even thinking? Oh, healing. Nobody knows. Boon healing. Yes, that is a thing. Uh. Okay, epic boons. Blah, blah, blah. What was it called? Ah, okay. <sighs> well, that'll be a fun moment for behind the scenes. Anyway, all right, here we go. So in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there are all of these magical boons that exist as a way to give more power to level 20 characters. And one of the options on that list is something called the Boon of Recovery. You can use a bonus action to regain a number of hit points equal to half your hit point maximum. Once you use this boon, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. So once a day, you can just heal half your hit point maximum. And if you were to give that to a boss type monster who then has, you know, 600 hit points or so anyway, then they would just once a day get to recover 300 hit points. And that, again, is something canonical from the Dungeon Master's Guide. So while you are very likely to have your players yell at you for being cheap, I mean, that is a canonical thing that they would then know exists and could work for themselves because that's an amazing thing to have access to. Uh, and just one last thing then on the subject of healing, one other option is to simply have healers. So normally, a boss-type monster is intended to be a solo encounter. But again, with action economy being such a prevalent thing, a boss having a bunch of minions around them also is a very logical way to have a different style of encounter. So if you have the boss just surrounded by mooks, and then if they did have a healer dedicated to them as an option. So 
having your boss just get healed by a minion of theirs during a fight is oddly enough something i don't really see a whole lot so healers are you know vital to a DD party but bad guys for some reason never really seem to have a healer on retainer and that's just something odd to me in just DD lore in general just you'd think that if you are this rich powerful force that you just get you know a bard even on retainer someone who can help manage your press and then also just heal you when things go bad like i can understand it'd be hard to convince a good cleric potentially but i mean bards have magic so and they are often portrayed as people that are available for a coin so have a bard work for you that just makes sense so uh moving on though from all of that Another way to balance out the action economy. So legendary creatures have legendary resistance and legendary actions. The legendary resistance allows such creatures to just nope three dangerous things per day. And that is, as I talked about a lot in the Tarasque episode, a very useful thing to stop against the many, many save or die type effects that do exist in 5e. And then legendary actions is meant to be a way to help balance out the number of attacks that come against a powerful creature. But I'm honestly not a huge fan of legendary actions because even if it can boost a powerful creature from having two attacks per turn to having five attacks per round, that doesn't help if you have a high-level party that has 20 attacks against you. So to borrow another thing, actually, from 4th edition that I also miss, there were a lot of powerful creatures, or just particularly fast creatures was another interpretation I'd seen, where a creature would just roll initiative twice and just have two turns per round. However, that does have quite a number of pros and cons that you really should consider if you want to use that for a particular epic monster that you're trying to create. So there are a lot of effects that allow a saving throw every turn. And then that would mean then that this creature would have double the opportunities to save from effects that are running against it. On the downside, there are also a lot of effects that are you take damage every time you start your turn in the effect, and that would also then trigger twice as often. It also means that the creature's speed would effectively be doubled if they're able to move on each turn. So there definitely are pros and cons to that, but especially if you have like a magic user boss, then if you had two spells per turn, two area of effect attacks, two chances to save against things that the party is doing to it, I really do think that that is a very good way to pump up certain epic type monsters. So in summary, to have a truly epic challenge for a high level party of adventurers requires epic monsters to be pit against them. And there are an infinite number of ways on how exactly to customize such a creature, but it really can be an incredibly fun experience to design such things as a DM and to just hear the lamentations of your players as they are crushed. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tier stars as low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where we will chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwake Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.